from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Badass Counseling Show Lightning Round, as in lightning fast, zippity zip, flash, flash, pop, pop, pow. Taking questions today, whether you are checking in from Luxembourg or New South Wales, Maryland or Massachusetts, from Winnipeg down to Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Great to have everyone here. I'm joined in studio by KC over in the booth and Rob the Rocket next to me. Rob, what's the hey. good word, my man? Time marches on, Sven. You know, it's been 24 years since the premiere of The Sopranos. 24 years already. And he had a therapist too, Dr. Melfi. But I think you're better than she is. I think you give better counseling personally. She was much better looking. Ah, uh, well, yeah. Or at least Tony Soprano thought so. You insist. <laughs> So it's good to have everyone here, and we're just going to go ahead and dive right in. I am taking listener questions. I am, for those of you in the listening audience, listening to the podcast, I am live right this moment on Facebook and TikTok and YouTube. This episode will be posted in a few weeks or month, what have you, but you can always cut catch our uh, podcast the day of the taping uh with video and uncut on youtube so you'll see the any behind the scenes stuff anytime rob groans because i've said something really stupid which is quite often everything wait if you're listening to the podcast you're missing all that if you watch the videos over on youtube you catch everything all right so here we go sven what's your best advice for breaking the trauma bond with your ex well as you know i'm a big fan of talking things out, writing things out. The trauma bond is based on the fact that you love the person and you experience pain together, right? At the hands of each other or shared joint pain of something else. So all of that has to come out of you. The love has to come out of you. The pain has to come out of you. The fear of being alone and all the other fears, it all has to come out of you. You break the trauma bond by going into the trauma bond inside of yourself. It's it's what's happening in here. That's where the problem is. It's always what's here in your chest, in your throat, down in your solar plexus, down in your gut. All of that stuff has to come out. And as you guys have heard me say a million times, journal that shit out, write letters that you don't send, flushing it all out. And you keep doing it until it's done. I had gone through a, uh, my second marriage and it was about a year later and I was I had divorced her. There was just too much fighting. She was a great person, great, really great person, but just too much fighting. And it's just like, I don't want this. And I broke it off with her. But a year later, I still missed her. I loved her. I mean, she's just a fantastic woman. And as you guys have all experienced in your own lives, when it was good, it was great, right? When it was bad, it sucked ass, right? And what I had to do, what I realized was we always think of, a, you know, love as a good emotion. Well, why would I ever want to let go of love? Love is good. Well, I'm going to hold on to love. No, there are times when holding on to love keeps you from moving forward. And that's precisely what it was with me with my second wife. We're a year out of the relationship. And because I still loved her and longed for her and remembered all the good times, I still had one foot in the past. So I didn't try to force myself to not think about those good times or not think about that love. I went into the love. I held on tighter. I wrote about it. I journaled about it. I would go to our favorite restaurant. I would eat, you know, her favorite type of pizza. Um, I would, you know, wear the shirt that she always loved it when I wore it. I would do all these things. 
And I would keep doing them. And I was doing the journaling and counseling, but especially the journaling and writing letters to her that I didn't send. I was doing all of those things and I would do them repeatedly until eventually I'm eating that type of pizza and it doesn't bring up thoughts of her or it brings up thoughts, but it doesn't have an emotional charge to it. We cling to some people say, well, Sven, how do you get over a relationship? How do you end it? How do you let go of someone? Because I know when I was going through um, my first divorce, people kept saying, you know, two years later, oh, you just got to let go. You just got to let go. And I remember thinking, but how? What does it, what does that mean? Just like, what the fuck is that? Oh, just like, oh, okay, Dumbo. You think I haven't fucking thought of that? Just let go? That's your advice? No, and for me, what I began to realize, and I remember reading it in two different authors that I really loved back at the time. James Hillman, and I still love him, one of the great authors. And his, his writing is uh, pretty thick, pretty dense, but he was the head of the Jung Institute in Switzerland for a while, an American psychologist and a very deep thinker. And he proposed, he offered one thing that he believed in, and it, 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 it um, dovetailed with what Another psychologist whom you've all heard of, if not his name, you've heard of his work, John Gray, who wrote the whole Mars-Venus sequence of books, which were huge back in the 90s. And they both agreed on one thing, probably other things, but one in particular, and that is um, we let go by holding on. And and uh, Hillman talked about sometimes the way we get rid of a physical fever. If you have a, if your child has a fever, sometimes some doctors espouse spiking that fever rather than trying to bring it down, take it up. And fevers aside, the point is we let go of someone by holding on tighter, by going through all the things that you used to do together, remembering all the thoughts, allowing yourself to feel all the feelings and flushing it all out, going to your favorite restaurant and going again, or going to taking that favorite walk in the park where you then sit and watch the little kids play Little League all the time. Keep doing that until it's no longer charged with emotion. So the goal in letting go isn't to let go, it's to hold on until you're tired of holding on. All right, next question. Please help, in all capital letters. I need to let go of a man that can't commit, but I don't know how. I had hopes for this one. Yeah, it's the hopes that keep us holding on, isn't it? It's the dreams, it's the aspirations. And so ending a relationship is really about um, grieving the death. Very often it's grieving the death of the dream. It's the same way with careers, the same way with family. When you have to walk away from someone, you have to dream of, you know, being close with this sibling or with my parent until, you know, my old age or being with this lover as a spouse, you know, till I'm in old age. And the dream dies. And we need to grieve. As you know, I'm a former pastor. I've done quite a few funerals in my life. All right. And I'm a big believer in grieving. I'm not a real big, I don't get a big heart on over celebration of life type funerals. I mean, yeah, we can do the celebration, but I believe that the, the funeral is for the living and the living need to grieve. Otherwise we just store that pain. It stays inside of us. And so we need to allow that out. Well, especially when someone dies, but also when a relationship ends. And so when you say, I need to let go of a man that can't commit, but I don't know how, I had hopes for this one. Well, you sort of end it with your hang, with the hangup. The hangup is your hopes. You don't want to let go. And so keep holding on. But allow yourself to grieve the sadness of this dream dying. Allow yourself to articulate and name the fears that this won't happen again. I'm afraid I won't find somebody else. It's a scarcity mentality. Uh, KC talks about that. She talks about, you know, it's so easy to think, well, I'll never find someone again. I remember feeling that at the end of my first marriage. 
that I'll never find someone this great again. And what life surprised me, I did the work and my second wife was even better than my first one. And this relationship, you know, that I'm in now, which is decades later, is better than any relationship I've ever had. As long as you're committed to doing the healing work, your relationships get better, but it requires allowing myself to grieve the death of this one, trusting that there'll be new life ahead. All right, next question. Rob, go ahead. Got one from uh, YouTube here, Sven. Mm -hmm. How do I deal with a bully of a father? I have tried to talk with him about it. It never goes anywhere with him. It just turns into an argument or I get to the point where I leave. I'm 35. My father was an alcoholic and a drug abuser. He beat me daily till I was 16. And that's when I moved out. And so the question is, how do I deal with it? How do I deal with this bully of a father? Okay, the mere fact that you're dealing with it at all, more specifically, the more mere fact that you're dealing with him at all, still, after all of this, all right? No sooner do I say what I just said, the mere fact that you're dealing with someone who keeps treating you poorly and has always treated you really, really badly, anybody listening to this show is saying, yeah, why is he doing that, right? And the reason we do, the reason you're doing that is you, it's want and fear. You still want something from your father. That's why you're still dealing with someone. If there were any other person in your life, if there were uh, the guy that lives down the street and every time he saw you, he put you down and he beat you for 16 years, you wouldn't allow it to last past you know six months. You'd walk away. You wouldn't allow it. But with parents, it's different. With certain people, it's different. You're still wanting something from your father, which is why you're still dealing, still interacting, still giving him the opportunity to hurt you again because you want something. A, you fear not having a father, but what you really fear is not getting that thing you want. And what you want is that acceptance and that approval that you never got, that attention, that affection, that acknowledgement of what he's done, that apology for everything he's done. You keep holding out, hoping that he'll one day give you the love that you've always wanted. So you now have, I think you said, Rob, that he's 35 years old. Yes. You have a 35-year pattern of behavior that you still don't believe. He's been a dick. He's been a hurtful son of a bitch your whole life, and you don't believe that that's what he's going to be tomorrow. And some people would say, well, people can change, Sven. Yeah, but this guy doesn't want to change. He's got a 35-year pattern of treating his son like shit. He's not expressing an interest in changing. Don't keep giving people chances if they're not going to take those opportunities to change. You want that acceptance and that approval so badly, and it grieves the soul to know I'm never going to get that love from the parent that I've wanted my entire life. That little four-year-old, that little eight-year-old inside of you is screaming, please love me, Dad. And it's so hard to walk away from that. I can remember uh, you know, a woman I was in a long-term relationship with coming to this exact realization when she was 42. She had hit the pinnacle of her career, and her mother was still so critical of her. And she realized that night, we were talking that night, and she said, I am never going to get my mother's approval. It hit her like a fucking freight train at 42 years old. And it was simultaneously the saddest day of her life that she's never going to get the approval, that she has spent her entire life bending and contorting and doing everything to try to get from her mother. And it was simultaneously the most liberating day of her life because she realized I no longer have to spend my life bending and contorting and trying to win her love that I can finally begin to live my life my way. What you're grieving, is, what you need to do is grieve it. You need to begin to realize you're never gonna get anything from your dad that feels good and you need to create hard and fast boundaries. I mean, you do what you want. You're a grown ass man. 
it's your life. You can do whatever you want. But the bottom line is, is um, you got to shut that shit down and walk away. And you got to begin the grieving process of realizing you're never going to get your love needs met from your father. It's sad. And I'm sincerely sorry. And it sucks. But you have to do it for yourself. Otherwise, you are continuing to allow someone to abuse you. And that's not okay. All right. Next question. My therapist said, I'm too strong and my pain tolerance is too high. Being too strong can be a weakness. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's it's so easy to be too strong. It's so easy to uh, take it and take it and take it and take it. And what we eventually realize is that we have to change our definition of strength from how much I can take. Unhappy people define strength by how much I can take. And I can take it. And I can eat more shit. I'll take it. I, I'll eat more shit. Do whatever you want. I can take it. Happy people acknowledge that. And that's part of the equation. But happy people define strength as I don't take it. And I stand up and I shut it down and I speak my truth. And when something hurts or when someone's not acknowledging and taking into account my feelings and needs and wants and expectations, I shut that shit down. I stand up for myself. So it's not about what I take. It's about what I say no to. See, now that's the hard one. I talk about in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. I talk about how when we're kids, the single scariest word in the English language is hearing the word no. No, you can't have that candy bar in the checkout lane at the grocery store. No, you can't go to band camp. No, Sven, you can't have a go-kart, okay? Uh, but when we're adults, the scariest word in the English language is speaking the word no. No, I don't want to do that. No, you can't be in my life when you treat me that way. No, this isn't okay. It's scary, especially if no hasn't been part of your vocabulary. And the reason it's so scary is because when I say, no, I don't wanna do that. No, it's not okay to treat me that way. No, this isn't fair to me. Inside of the word no is the word I, really. I, no, I don't want this. No, that's not okay for you to treat me this way. No, I don't wanna go do that. And for a lot of people, the reason it's so hard to speak no is because it's so hard to speak the word I, because you had your no stripped from you. You had your own sense of self, your own I stripped from you at a very young age. And so the notion of refining that, even though your knees are shaking, your palms are sweating, finding that no is really you finding your own I, your own sense of self. No is so powerful, not just because it stops things and it creates boundaries and it creates safe space for you, but no is an affirmation of your I. I matter. I am lovable. I am good. I matter enough to me to stop that which doesn't feel good. All right. Um, all right. Oh, I love this question. This is a fun one. This is a sort of a dating relationship question. Uh, but I like this one. Listen to this one, Rob. Is it true with men, the saying, if he wanted to, he would, right? We've all heard that, right? Yeah, what was that movie? Um, He's Just Not That Into You. I think that was the name of the movie. Cute movie, great movie. And basically, one of the premises of the movie is precisely this. If the guy's into you, you know, he'll come after you. He'll say something and he'll approach you or he'll, and you know what I say to that? Bullshit. Bullshit. You want to know why? I'm, this is from Sven's personal experience. Let's open the diary. Let's open the book of Sven's personal experiences. We are now reading from Great Expectations, Sven's personal experiences. In Sven's personal experience, as I look back on my past, you want to know what the themes, one of the leitmotifs of my life story is? Blown opportunities, particularly vis-a-vis -vis women. Amen to that. How do you know? 
Oh, you mean you same, as well? Same, not, same deal. Okay, okay, no, okay. No, gotcha, not, gotcha. I'm not congratulating you. I'm saying <laughs> I'm with you. Oh, man. I had so many. I mean, it started back in like fucking, well, 12 years old. It was when I had my first girlfriend, Missy Schroer, um, who's now deceased, rest her, God rest her soul. Um, but I was always intimidated by women. I grew up in a family of five, six brothers. I mean, I had a sister, but she was one of the guys. And it's just like women, girls intimidated the shit out of me. They did. I mean, I had friends who were girls and I, you know, and I was always a very social guy and, and whatever, but I terrified. There were plenty of girls I was into that I didn't approach. And a lot, you know, I, and I love it when women say nowadays, you know, not nowadays, but when a woman says, oh, I wish that guy would just grow a pair and ask me out. It's like, oh, really? Okay, consider this. When I, if I asked the first girl out when I was 12, all right, and I've been asking women out, let's just say randomly, let's say I'm 30 now. I'm not, I'm 56, but um, let's say now I'm 30. That means for 18 years, for every yes I would get, I got minimum, even the best looking guys or the friendliest guys, for every yes they get, they're probably getting eight, 10 no's. If they're asking out all the ones that they're actually interested in, or if they're approaching all the ones that they're interested in. So let's say you're on an eight to one ratio, no's to yeses. Eventually you get tired. Eventually it's like, fuck it. Give me the low hanging fruit. Or you know what? Give me, give me a girl who just gives me a smile conveying that the door is open and she's open to me, you know, asking her out or something like that. I don't want to work that hard. And I'm especially not going to go up to a woman who's like really smart or really attractive. It's like, I know I'm going to get a no. <laughs> Why even try? So grow a parent and ask me out, fuck off. If you've been getting eight to one, you know, no to yeses for 18 years, you become a bit, uh, you know, reticent. Okay. And so this notion of if he wanted to, he would, it's just not true. There's so many guys out there and Rob and I living proof. There's so many guys out there that there may be guys that are interested in you, but they're just scared of women. Or they're scared to ask out. It's scary. Imagine you asking him out. Was it scary or not scary? Go ahead, Rob. You got. You want to weigh in? I, I don't know if this is actually relevant, but as a young teenager, a, a girl came on to me, and I thought there was something wrong with her. <laughs> I, you know, and it's funny you say that. I, I, I totally get that, Rob. In that, as far as you know, girl coming on to you. I was living in L.A. and I had biked over uh, to Santa Monica which was from where I was living. It was probably a good 10, 12 mile bike ride. And I was at the Barnes and Noble right there on, what is it, Third Street Promenade uh, or Third Avenue Promenade, whatever it is. And uh, it used to be a Barnes and Noble there. I don't know if it still is. And I'm looking at different books. And my first book had come out by that time, but it wasn't in Barnes and Noble. Anyway, I was just looking at books at the table. And then someone says, uh, I hear a female voice say, hello. And I look up and it wasn't a Barnes and Noble employee. It was actually a movie star that all of us know. And she had her little puppy in her jacket or whatever. And she said, hello to me. <laughs> Any bets on what I did? Run. <laughs> Pretty much. I said, oh, hi. And you know how many times in my life I've replayed that instant with stupid, stupid, stupid. I, the same thing with me with that experience when I was a, a young teenager. I had to journal that thing out. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, it's scary. And I mean, and this person in the movie, I mean, all I had to say was, you got your dog with you. What does your dog like to read? Or something witty. But no, I was just so, I didn't know what to say. Blown opportunities. So all this to answer the question put up by Lau Ren Renee. 
Is it true with men, the saying, if he wanted to, he would? No, it's absolutely not always true. In some cases, sure, it's true. But in some cases, it's just not true. It's just maybe the guy's scared. Maybe the guy comes from a family of brothers and he just doesn't know how to talk to girls. It doesn't mean he's, oh, he's a beta. He's not an alpha male. He's bullshit. So many great guys out there that for whatever reason, they're not, you know, doggedly pursuing every girl they want. Um, You know, so... So if you approach someone and say hi, and they just say, oh, hi, um, it doesn't mean they don't like you. It could just mean that, you know, they're just as dumb as I was. All right. Next question. I have one here from YouTube, if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. Consider. Please. Uh, It's a year on Saturday since my dad died. I feel numb in the sense I don't really think about him or the fact that he's died all that much. And then maybe more so I feel bad about not thinking about him, but then I find myself in physical pain rather than mental pain. I like to process this, but I'm not even sure where to start. Mm. Dad died a year ago, right? Physical pain, Yep. just sort of numb. Uh, one of my questions that I would ask that person, and we don't have the ability, um, I, I don't have the ability to ask follow-up questions, uh, is how old was your father when he died? Um, my dad died when he was 92. We saw it coming, you know, for 15 years. Not that he was sick all the time, but yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, your parents get into their mid eighties or what, it, you know, early eighties, you know, it's common and no male in our bloodline had ever lived past 83. But if your father died in his sixties or in his fifties or in his seventies, it's young. And so it's shocking. And so 59. Oh, dad. Oh, it says 59. Oh, just wrote in. Yes. Oh God. 59 years old. Yeah. It's shocking. Wait, there's more. It was two weeks before her wedding. Oh, so this is a female. Okay. Yes. Two weeks before her wedding and dad died. Oh yeah. Your body, your entire system is still in shock and you didn't have time to process it at the time because I'm betting you went through with your wedding, right? Of course you did. And so you went through with the wedding and then there's the high of the wedding, but that, and this just pit in the bottom of your stomach during the wedding, or maybe you had to shut that off so that you'd be present during your wedding. And then there's the honeymoon and then there's the first year and it's there the whole time. And you haven't had a chance to even know what to think about. I, first of all, I would tell you, you need to be in counseling with somebody, whether it's a clergy person or a therapist, somebody who knows what the hell they're doing when it comes to grief counseling, uh, death of a parent type counseling. Um, and, Basically, where I would start you if you and I were in counseling is I would simply ask you the question and you sort of already answered it, but I would press you anyway for a different answer. And I'd ask you right now, what hurts the most? And I'd simply ask you that, what hurts the most right now? And maybe all that hurts right now is I just, I'm not able to call dad up or, you know what? I just missed that he wasn't at the wedding. And sometimes it's the small things that elicit the biggest response because it just cracks open the dam. And I have to almost think that the reason you haven't been able to sort of process any of this mentally, the reason you're having physical pain is because you've got all this mental and emotional pain inside of you. I mean, that was pretty easy, okay? Um, But the mental and emotional pain, I think I'd be willing to bet that you're keeping that shit locked down pretty tight in the vault because you can't bear the thought of letting it out. It's the same reason a lot of people don't go to counseling or once they come to counseling with me, they run away because we get down into the deep shit that they don't really want to feel because they're terrified of being overwhelmed. I'm willing to bet that you fear being overwhelmed if you allow any of this out. And the truth is you're going to be overwhelmed. It is. It is going to knock you the fuck over and down. And and this is just the little note to all these people say, oh, 
suffering is a choice. Pain is a choice. And yeah, right. Okay. Tell that uh, this woman who just lost her father at the age of 59. Tell it somebody who's lost their child or, or lost their favorite animal that was their closest friend or someone who lost their business or something. Yeah, you, your feelings are a choice. Fuck you, they're a choice. Yeah, her choice has been to lock it down, subconsciously locking it down, and it's taken an immense physical toll. You have to allow for the fact that it's going to knock you over some days. And you have to keep start flushing out that pain and keep flushing out that pain. Whether with a therapist or on your own, you have to address, begin to let it out. Maybe you have to microdose that pain. Let it out a little bit each day. Start, start on a weekend where you give yourself a little bit of room. Start on a Saturday morning and sit down and just journal out the wedding. Talk about your wedding. Start there. What was it like not having dad there? What were you feeling that day knowing dad had died two weeks earlier? Just start there and commit to just journaling for a few hours that Saturday and then pack it back up, go do something the rest of the day or stay in it for part of the day, but make Sunday your transition day back into Monday. But then Monday, give yourself 30 minutes at the beginning of the day, wake up earlier or do it at the end of your day and commit to a little bit each day or maybe some each week, maybe rather than a you know a half hour or an hour each day, do four hours every Saturday instead. But you have to make the commitment to begin to flush this out. And doing a 50-minute session once a week to get out extreme grief, it's not going to be enough. This, this grief is going to drag on for years if you do that. You have to become make it much more intensive and block off more periods of time. It's not going to happen naturally. You have to be disciplined. Grieving the death of someone you love, uh, the premature death of someone you love is even worse. And you have to be deliberate about massive blocks of time and energy to get this out. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be sad. Yes, it's going to be maddening and frustrating and all those feelings. Yes, it is. And you have to go into it. Otherwise, you know what? You're already experiencing what is to come. If you keep all those feelings locked down, you think you're experiencing physical pain now, it's going to eat away at your joints. It's going to eat away at your heart. It's going to eat away at your liver, your lungs, your skin, all sorts of shit. So you have to commit to doing the work of healing. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And I promise you there will be more fascinating questions and more interesting answers. Right back. Okay. Well, you've, you've heard the podcast, you've listened to other people's issues, maybe you've studied hundreds of Sven's text talk videos. Time to stop lurking, face your fears, and focus directly on the one person in your life who can benefit the most from Sven's experience and insight. Now, that would be you. Just go to badasscounseling.com and order Sven's book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. Or check out his many video courses. Sven found a way to help himself out of a 12 years depression. It worked for him, and it can work for you too. Check out badasscounseling.com today. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are back with the Badass Counseling Show Lightning Round. I'm in studio with KC over in the booth and Rob the Rocket next to me. We're taking listener questions. We are taping an episode of the podcast. So those of you catching me live on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, YouTube and on TikTok, this is not the actual podcast. This is a taping for the podcast. If you want the podcast, go to Spotify, Audible, uh, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast sites and look for the Badass Counseling Show 
All right. So I have been, quote unquote, hiding from my family and friends for a few years, and I don't know why. Uh, implicit in the question is, why am I doing this? And I'm willing to bet there's fear. As you guys have heard me say a million times, anytime you're ever trying to figure out why someone is doing something that doesn't make sense, always ask yourself the question, what's the primary fear driving the behavior? Speculate the answers, write them down, then go with the biggest, hairiest, scariest one. So in this case, question is, well, why am I avoiding my family? Why am I hiding from my family and friends? Um, potentially two things. One, uh, you have pain that you don't want to share with your family and friends and you just want to be alone to take care of. And so then the fear is that your family would become a drain or they would want to know about it or they'd ask you all sorts of questions about it. Or the other one, why you're hiding from your family and friends is you fear them hurting you in some way. So they're either, you fear the impact of them on your life, whether them hurting you or them uh, judging you or wanting to get into why you're in pain or something else. But there's some something about them that represents difficulty, pain, confrontation. Uh, and as a result, you're, you're staying away, you're hiding. And very often hiding is sort of a negative uh, way of spinning it, but it could be that you're cocooning. It could be that you're taking, creating a boundary to create some safe space for yourself, that something inside of you is processing. Maybe you're trying to get some pain out. Maybe you're trying to heal from something. And so then the question would become, what are, you, what are you needing room for? What does it give you the opportunity? How is this hiding actually a blessing? What's it giving you? What's it enabling you to sort of sit with and, and take your time with? And that's for you to go deeper into. All right. Um, how do you find a good therapist, a good fit, productive um, I, if you had just said, how do you find a good therapist? I'd have to ask you, well, how do you define good? Because for everyone, it's different. I was uh, dating a woman, oh, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, she was seeing a, a therapist and she says, you know, if I'm really honest with you, Sven, um, I don't always open up and tell my therapist everything. <laughs> and if I were to tell you all the people I've talked to in my career counseling and friends and so on and so forth who have a therapist, they don't open up everything too. They don't do it. And very often the reason they don't do it is because they don't want to deal with the judgment from that therapist or they feel like their therapist couldn't handle it. You know, I talk about good therapy and a, a trust relationship. It's not just that I trust you with my secrets. I trust that you are a vessel large enough to contain my problems. Do you know how many people I get coming to me saying, Sven, I'm coming to you because my last therapist says, I don't know how to help you. Or my last therapist said, you scare me. Or my last therapist said, uh, you shouldn't be feeling that. Or my last therapist basically somehow conveyed that they couldn't handle me. <laughs> and, and I mean, hell, at least they were honest, but sheepers, creepers. And so, yeah, the question is, how do you define good? But then you answered it. You said a good fit, productive. Well, even that is somewhat sketchy. You know, what does it mean to be productive? Some people for productive is, um, you know, they can feel like they're going to therapy and they can go really, really slow and take things in very, very, very small bites. I'm just going to put it out there. You asked the question of me, so I'm going to answer the question of how I would answer. Good therapist is someone who pushes you. I'm aggressive in my counseling. I am, and my clients know it, but I'm also loving and I'm kind and I'm getting aggressive, not with my client, but with the demons inside of my client. I'm in there, I got sleeves rolled up, I got my armor on, I'm going down their fucking throat to slay the fucking dragons that have been consuming them. Those beliefs and those fears and those pains from their life. And sometimes that means being tough with my client, but my clients always know I love them and I care about them. And I fucking tell them flat out, I fucking love you, man. Tell them flat out. 
I love the person that they are at their essence and my job is to slay all the other shit that's in the way. But you don't ask what a good therapist is, you ask how do I find a good therapist? Ah, there's the trick. Um, I actually have a video on that right on the front of my uh, website. I'm in a blue shirt. I don't know why that, I, I made this video like five, six, five years ago. I know that's such a dumb comment. I'm in a blue shirt. Um, but I talk about the difficulty of finding a good therapist. And it's just, a, it's a free video. It's right there. It's like five minutes long, seven minutes long, whatever the hell it is. And I step you through what it takes and some of the frustrations and so forth. Um, there are a lot of good sites out there. And really what I would do if I were looking for a therapist is I would interrogate them. I would get on the phone with them. A lot of them will give you a 15 minute and I would just watch how they act. Do they ask questions? Do they ask follow-up questions? Or do they sit back? And, and this is what you can do even in your first or second session. Do they just sit back and listen? I would, I swear to God, I would, you know, fucking blow my brains out, metaphorically speaking, if I had a therapist who just sat there and listened the whole fucking time. Because what they're fundamentally saying is, if I let you talk it out, you'll solve it yourself. Well, then what the fuck am I paying you for? I can go talk to myself at home, dipshit. It's like, I, for me personally, I want someone whose questions are further ahead than the very questions I'm asking myself. I want someone who's wrestled with this same shit or at least knows the questions uh, to ask or at least is just following their own curiosity. When I'm in counseling with someone, I'm just asking my own questions that I'm naturally curious about, things that don't make sense. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Just so, you're, just so I'm clear, you said that you love him, but you divorced him. Help me understand, what is that? Well, that's just natural curiosity. Well, I, I really do love him, but, but he could be such an asshole, and, but I just love him so much. Okay, I'm just following my natural curiosity. In other words, what I want is a therapist who's interactive, who's pushing me, whose own questions push me deeper, and you want someone who goes deep. And if you haven't heard of it before, if you're looking for particularly somebody in the psychology field, I found success with what's known as depth psychology. Um, but that, of course, that uh, went sort of in the directions that I kind of lean, um, and that's you know, I do the deep work in my work. Um, and, um, but finding it, I, unfortunately, it's partly hit or miss, but just watch and, and listen to your own self in your first session or in any interactions you have with your counselor in the beginning. Does it feel good? Does it not? And not just, oh, they placate me and make me feel nice. Does it push me? Do I feel like something's being accomplished? Yes, you can accomplish something in the first fucking hour. You can be given a new insight or a new challenge or a new way of thinking about it. It doesn't, if, if, if you're in counseling and it's taking a year or two years or five years or 10 years, Jesus Christ, this, you're not moving fast enough. Healing doesn't have to take forever. Even the hard shit can be done in rapid amount of time. I'm an absolute believer in that. Healing can be immediate if you go deep enough. And by immediate, I mean months. It doesn't have to take years and years and years. All right, next question. My mom is a paranoid schizophrenic and doesn't believe I am her biological child. How do I cope? Um, you don't ask the question, how do I interact with a paranoid schizophrenic? You ask, how do I cope? How do I address everything that's going on inside of me? First of all, I need to say to you, the Empress, um, I know nothing about paranoid schizophrenia or very, very little. I'm not a psychologist, I'm a soul counselor. What I do know is this. I do know that when you say that your mother doesn't believe I am her biological child, your soul is wounded like a dagger going right into your fucking heart and twisting. Your own mother doesn't recognize you as her own child. The anger you must feel 
at her disease. The, the sadness, the longing of your heart to know that you will likely never again have a relationship with your live, living, breathing mother. She's not dead. She's right there in front of you and you can't touch her. You can't connect with her again, potentially ever. The amount of sorrow in your soul, you don't cope with that. You go in and you begin to flush out the pain and the sadness and the rage at the universe, at luck, at disease, at God, rage. To know that you can stand here and look at your mother and she has no idea who you are. You have to be deliberate about your counseling, going to a therapist or journaling, letter writing, and getting out all of those feelings inside of you. It's not just doing breath work and it's not just getting exercise and eating right. You actually have to get all of that pain out of you. Go ahead, Rob. This is from YouTube. Yep, just came in. And I kind of know where you're going to go with this, which is why I want to read it to you. All right. I was a serial cheater. I see now how much my wife of 17 years and seven kids means to me. I just started journaling and started a self-improvement journey two weeks ago. How do I show my wife I'm truly changing? So cheated for 17 years, right? And I've been journaling for two weeks. Wife of 17 years. Wife of 17 years. Yeah. And uh, serial cheater. Serial cheater. And now I've been sort of looking at myself for two weeks and how do I convince her that I'm changing? You don't and you can't. And if she were my client, I'd tell her, don't trust him. Not anytime soon. If you're a serial cheater, that means you not only broke the trust. And, and first of all, I want to say I applaud you for the work you're doing. I really do. But you're just beginning. You're, you, the, what caused you to cheat, and this just sort of twists people's head into knots when I say this. And I talk about this in my last book. There's a hole in my love cup. Every problem that exists within a relationship predates that relationship. Every problem that exists within your relationship, the origins of that problem predate this relationship. Your cheating has nothing to do with your marriage. You may think it's, oh, I just wanted more, or she, you know, I wanted more sex, or I wanted this, or it was just, no, it goes back to all the pain and the fears and the bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself in childhood. And it's great that you've been journaling and doing some self-work for a couple of weeks, but you haven't even touched that shit. You are years from getting close to winning her trust back, years. In part because it took years to fucking destroy her trust. The mere fact that she is still with you after serial cheating, your wife has some work to do too. In fact, she has more work to do. She has to do the work of holding you accountable at every single fucking turn. But, and, and I, again, I applaud you and you need to keep working, but it's gonna take years to win her trust back. And it's gonna take quite a while, depending on the caliber of your therapist, it's going to take you a, a good amount of time to go back there and find the origins of what the hell is really going on inside of you. Now, if I were working with you, we could tear this shit out three to six months, but I, that would be weekly and we'd be going deep. And, but you can't convince her. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get her back, right? You're trying to get her, you may have her back. She may be in your orbit, but you're trying to get her to open up and be vulnerable and, and want you again. She's not going to do that. And I would, and anybody who is who actually loves her would be telling her, don't trust him anytime soon. 
You so fucking destroyed her trust. You destroyed her soul, made her feel unlovable and unwantable. And I'm not saying you are inherently a bad person, but you've caused a fuck ton of pain. And there has to be not only atonement, but penance. I wrote a book on cheating, on infidelity, a two volume book. It's called I Steal Wives. And uh, I've been cheated on in two major relationships. I cheated on one back in my early 20s in a major relationship. And I have been the co-cheater in many relationships where someone was cheating on their spouse with me. And this was back in my 20s, 30s, and early 40s. Not proud of it, but I learned a lot from it. And it just, it takes a long time. And the mere fact that you're doing this healing work now, but you didn't do it 10 years ago or five years ago, just kept taking and taking and taking and taking for yourself. The mere fact that you're doing it now is great. It really is great, but it's gonna take a long time for her to fully trust you. And if you're trying to get her to trust you, you need to stop. Because what you're fundamentally trying to do is get her to change her natural feelings so that you can get her treating you nicely again. Stop, quit trying to win her back. Just do the work of healing and trust that if you fully do the work, that either the relationship will work out and it'll work out well, trust that it'll work out, or that the relationship will end and life will go on. But if you're trying to get her back, you're trying to force her to do what you want to do. Just do the healing work. And if she takes you back, she'll take you back someday. But if you're trying to pressure her or convince her, it's you manipulating her. All right, and that's a tough pill to swallow. And again, I'm not, I admire anyone who's genuinely trying to heal. All right, I've done, uh, for a very brief time, I was a prison chaplain. And you're dealing with the worst of the worst. I have had clients who have committed all manner of crimes. And my job, if you're coming to me, it's kind of like in the legal system. You know, everybody's in, in the US, everybody's entitled to a defense lawyer, even the most heinous of criminals. And if someone's coming to me seeking help, I'm gonna do my best to try to help them and find the good and, and do the healing work. But it doesn't change the fact that you committed these crimes and you shouldn't, and I need to say this one more time to you, sir, stop trying to win her back because that's you trying to manipulate her. His uh, job is more difficult. He just uh, added, she recently started dating and I'm 1200 miles away from home working to keep the roof over her and my kids' heads. Right, and you all met at least that. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and it's hard. It is hard and she started dating and what did you think she would do? and you cheated on her and cheated on her, why would she wait for you to treat her nicely? And, and I'm sure it's hard on your heart seeing her dating someone else, so you're getting a small taste of what she went through. Um, and this is a messed up situation. If you wanna counsel with me on this one, I'd be happy to do it. Go to badasscounseling.com, read the counseling page, and then reach out through the contact page. All right, next question. What else have we got? Is it heartless to text your son that his first cousin passed away? Um, no, it's good to let your son know that his first cousin passed away. He has every right to know that. So I'm betting you're not asking about whether or not it's okay to share the information. You're asking, is it whether or not it's okay to text your son as opposed to calling your son? Um, which sort of begs the obvious question, why wouldn't you call him? Obviously, if you can text, your phone must work. Why don't you want to call your son? I'm just curious. Does your son not want to talk to you? 
Is that what it is? Then sure, at least it, fine. Drop, yes, let him know through text. That's fine. If your son, for some reason, is not talking to you. But assuming your son is talking to you, is there something about this call that you don't want to have? Is it possible you don't want to deal it? You don't want to deliver the bad news? Um, is it possible you don't want to um, feel his feelings or uh, feedback? And if so, uh, you need to be doing your own journaling to figure out what the hell is going on inside of me that I don't want to talk to my son with a hard and be the deliverer of hard news. All right, next question. All right, here we go. This is a good one. This is coming to us from Facebook, Rob. This is from Facebook, Rob. Go for it. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, was it you or was it KC in the earlier between sessions today said they know someone who calls it? I was saying that we had a, uh, a veterinarian uh, first visit <laughs> who only liked to use his flip phone didn't text didn't really like technology uh-huh. and he said uh, my wife is trying to get me to use um uh, instabook and facegram <laughs> but he just can't get the hang of instabook couldn't get either one <laughs> so i am coming to you today from tickbook and facetube well played sir <laughs> and you talk um, no, you talk, you, talk, you I talk. talk, right from I talk. All right, here we go. Um, so Christopher comes to us from Facegram and he asks, uh, will you speak about emotionally unavailable people? Sure. Uh, you don't really say what specifically you want to hear about with emotionally unavailable people. Um, but if you're characterizing someone as emotionally unavailable, that implies that you want them to be emotionally available, Right. Otherwise, you would say, um, I like people who are emotionally quiet, but you're saying they are unavailable, implying I want them to be available. So you are in some sort of relationship. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a lover. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a parent, a sibling or whatever, neighbor, and someone is emotionally unavailable, but you want them to be more emotionally connected. You want them to open up and or be present to your emotions, and they're not. And the mere fact that you're affixing a label to it of emotional unavailable says it's not a one-off. It implies it's a pattern, that this person is routinely not available to my emotions or doesn't open up with their emotions. And the truth is, that is their right. Nobody has to open up any fucking emotions if they don't want to. It's your right. It's their right. If they don't want to open up their emotions, if they don't want to be present to to your emotions, they don't have to. It's a free fucking world, and in no place is that a crime. It's a choice, which also means it's a choice of whether or not you stay with them. You don't have to stay with someone who's not present to your emotions. You don't have to stay with someone who doesn't open up with their emotions. But I'm betting you've already considered that. So you're with someone, and they're being emotionally unavailable, and you're asking me, well, you know, talk about it. It's seeming to imply, what do I do if I'm with someone who's emotionally unavailable? You ask yourself why you're with someone who's emotionally unavailable when you want them to be available. And you're going to keep asking yourself that question until eventually you answer the question by saying, I need to leave. Either that, or I need to just accept this relationship for what it is. My father, wonderful man, kindest man to ever walk the face of the earth. He had no sin. He was just this He was an innocent guy. He just didn't, he talked too much at times, but innocent guy. Um, But he was not an emotionally like available person. He he couldn't go deep, let me put it that way. 
My dad, every single day of my life, told me that he loved me. Gave me a big hug, gave me a kiss every single day of my life, right? And even in my hardest times, he'd say, I'm proud of you, son. You know, or he'd slip me a $20 bill. When even in the years he didn't understand what the hell I was doing in my life, when I took those years and went and lived among the homeless and ministered to the homeless and slept on concrete every night for two and a half years, he didn't fucking understand. You know, he's love. What, is, what does that say? That he, you love so you don't understand him, but you still financially support him, you know, with the 20 here or there. Or you still, you know, say kind words. He was a good man, but he was not emotionally available. And did I wish he would be? Did I wish I could go deep with my father? Yes, but at some point, I just, into my 30s, I began to accept it for what it was. This is my father. I have a good, decent man who provides me an example of what it means to be good in the world, to be kind and to be honest. And I just accepted it for what it is. So when you say, Sven, talk about a relationship or interacting with someone who's emotionally unavailable, you can either accept that this is the extent of what you're ever gonna get from them, or you can walk on and move on with your life and find people and surround yourself with people who meet the needs and the wants that you have. And that is people who are emotionally available, who are there for your emotions and who open up with their own emotions. It's just a choice. It's not a crime. It's not a crime. It can be sad and hard to let go of someone, but alas, this is the vector that life often takes. All right. I've become an alcoholic as a result of a very abusive marriage. How do I heal? Um... You don't say, Leanne, who says, I've become an alcoholic as a result of a very abusive marriage. How do I heal? You basically, first of all, you draw a cause and effect relationship. The alcoholism is a result of the very abusive marriage, okay? Um, so that so focusing on stopping drinking doesn't really solve the problem. That just solves the symptoms. It's like, you know, you can take the fucking NyQuil to get rid of your sore throat, or you can take, uh, you know, you can uh, put a cold compress on your chest to make yourself wheeze less, but the, the bacteria is still in there. The infection is still in there. The sore throat isn't the problem. The virus causing the sore throat. No, that's the fucking problem. All right. And you said, you don't indicate, however, whether or not you're still in the very abusive marriage. I've become an alcoholic as a result of very abusive marriage. How do I heal? Well, if you are still in the very abusive marriage, you get out of the very abusive marriage. That would be a really great start. I'm willing to bet that the drinking will reduce radically once you get out of that relationship. But again, the drinking isn't the problem. That's just a symptom, all right? You will not be able to heal quickly or effectively within the context of a very abusive marriage. Now, assuming you are out, however, uh, you have to be willing to go into all those fucking feelings that you've been numbing yourself from with the booze. The pain, the rage, the anger, the frustration, the death of your relationship, all of this stuff. It's always about the willingness to go inside. Uh, but when it comes to the marriage itself, if it's still abusive, you have to begin the process of getting the fuck out. Otherwise, you'll just, this problem will continue and you'll continue to be fucking miserable. All right. What's next after you've done the work and the journaling? Uh, if you're asking the question, what's next after the journaling and the work, then you haven't done all the journaling and all the work because what's next happens effortlessly. See, here's what it is. Your authentic self and your passions and your desires and your sense of self and your sense of purpose and your plans and your, um, passions, they're inside of you. They're not out there somewhere. You don't have to go find yourself. It's inside of you. And what gets packed on top of that is all the shit and all the pain and all the fears and all the negative messaging you got about yourself, all the bullshit beliefs you were taught to believe about yourself are all packed on top of it. 
we're going into winter now. And here in the Northeast the, uh, of the United States, as in the Midwest and the far North of Minnesota, what happens is the leaves come off the trees and in the woods on my property where I always shoot my videos, all those leaves and all the dirt and all the dead bugs and the dead animals and all this stuff, it, it falls on the floor of the woods or my yard. And if I don't rake it up and I don't rake up my woods, so all that stuff gets on and then the rains come and then the snow and the ice comes and it forms a what? A pack. It packs on top of the earth. Well, guess what's in the earth? In the dirt underneath that pack are the tulip bulbs, are the jonquils, are the, you know, whatever, the little shoots, the little plants that have all gone fallow in winter. That pack is on top of them. And in order for those little things to be able to come through that, you got to remove the pack, you know, that packed on ice and dirt and leaves that are decomposing. You got to remove a lot of that so that those little shoots can come out of the ground. Well, it's the same way. If you've got a whole childhood and adulthood of shit, negative messaging and pain and fears and all this crap on top of your authentic self, what you have to do is begin to get that out of there and your natural authentic self will begin to blossom up effortlessly. So what's next after you've done the work of, of actually going in and getting all the heavy, ugly stuff, the stuff you're afraid will overwhelm you, the real stuff? And the real grieving and the real anger and the real frustration and the real sadness, as you get that up, your natural self, your natural aspirations are just going to bubble up. There's no thought involved. It's going to bubble up effortlessly. It's like when it, I like to give the example of, I don't know if you've ever been to Albuquerque or in the U.S., uh, you know, sort of the hot air cap balloon capital of the U.S. or one of them or ever watched them inflate hot air balloons. You know, they go early in the morning, they put the basket out, they attach it to the, they roll out the balloon on the ground and uh, they begin to blow in the helium, right? And uh, But they tie it down with lanyards, with uh, ropes, right? And then they get fully inflated and they get whoever's going on the trip and, you know, get them in the basket and then someone goes and, you know, unties the ropes. And what happens to a hot air balloon when the ropes holding it down have been loosed? The hot air balloon rises up effortlessly. Did you know that when you're up in a hot air balloon, you can't hear the wind? Because you're moving at the exact same speed as the wind. So there's no movement of air over your ears because you're moving at the same speed of the wind, all right? It happens effortlessly. You rise up. Your authentic self will rise up effortlessly as you more and more remove the pack of all the crud and pain and fears and bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself. I'm gonna take one more question and then we are going to call it a happy, happy day. All right, how do I get out of my own head? Uh, you get out of your own head by flushing out all the stuff that's in your head. It's like a dryer uh, that is stuck on go and your favorite sweater is in there and it's getting smaller and smaller, shrinking by the second except all the thoughts in your head just keep tumbling and tumbling and they keep expanding. You have to flush that shit out. I want to take one more question. All right. Um, how do you deal with a misogynistic slash extreme taker colleague that I unfortunately have to deal with? Kathy, you say you unfortunately have to deal with. That means you unfortunately are going to have to conjure up massive amount of energy every single fucking day to stand your ground and not back down. You're going to involve HR if there is an HR in your company and you are not going to back down. 
and you are going to call it out every single fucking time. And again, employ whatever levers of power you have at your disposal from HR or the boss or whatever, and don't stop. Because if you back down, they will only take more. And unfortunately, if you choose to stay in that work environment, which you're saying you do have to deal with, then you're gonna have to stand up and be tough every single fucking day. Sure, there's some measure of pick your battles, but you can't be backing down because an, uh, an extreme taker, especially a misogynist, is only gonna get more aggressive and, and just take more and run all over you. And you have to begin to stand up for yourself and do the hard task of fighting for it. To which someone else says, am I in the right to go no contact with someone? Yes, you are in the right to go no contact. If you need to go no contact with someone, go no contact with someone. If you need to end a relationship, fundamentally the message of tonight's podcast is if it doesn't feel good, stop doing it. If it doesn't feel good, stop allowing it. My father used to tell a joke. he say, you know, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, hey, doctor, it hurts when I do this with my elbow. And the doctor says, well, quit doing that. Well, it's the same thing in your relationships. Don't allow things that don't feel good. Doesn't mean, you, you know, on small things, doesn't mean you have to end the relationship, but you have to stand up and say, that doesn't feel okay. You can't be running from relationships. You can't be running from the skirmishes or you're not living authentically. You're not being honest within the context of the relationship. You have to stand up and shut it down or at least have the courage to talk about it when it's small, otherwise it'll get big. So many of these questions are, my problems have gotten so big, Sven, what do I do now? Well, we can solve what we do now, but then you need to be thinking about what you're gonna do next in your next relationship, your next friendship, your next love relationship, next interaction with family, because in your next you always have to be catching it when it's small and don't back down. Don't just smooth shit over. Don't just be the peacemaker instead or the peacekeeper. Instead, you have to stand up and fight for what feels good to you, your values, your feelings, your needs. You guys, these have been great questions. It's always such a pleasure doing a lightning round and, and having this sort of face-to-face -face time or face-to-your-questions time. And uh, thank you for your wonderful questions. Rob, any any final closing thoughts today? Yeah, I was reading about a survey taken last year of pastors, mm -hmm. and it said that 42% of pastors have considered quitting. And they say that um, the main reasons are the immense stress of the job, 56% said that. They feel lonely and isolated, 43%. And current political divisions was the third most popular reason at 38%. So I hope you're not feeling these things and you will continue to work for us, Sven. Well, okay, thank you. And, and I appreciate your concern. Um, and that is in my career as a former clergyman, but now as a soul counselor and so forth, um, you're always, my father was a pastor and all my uncles and all this shit. And so burnout was always a part of the conversation and the, the stresses of it. And, uh, you don't last long in, in it. If you're just going into being a pastor or any sort of leader where you're taking on people's problems, you don't go into it. If you're just going in for the money, you won't last long. Or if you, if you don't take care of yourself and that's why any good therapist is someone who's done the work on themselves first, they know how to handle their own shit and they've healed themselves, which enables them to be able to heal you and heal others every day without taking it on and taking it on and taking it on. And the other thing, as far as feeling isolated, that's the nature of any leadership position is you, there's just no one you can fucking talk to, especially in my job. I can't tell you about people's problems. So I'm, so then what do I do when I'm dealing with suicides and 
molesters and uh, extreme takers and all this every single day. I have to, when I tell you guys, you got to get the pain out. I tell you that because it fucking works because I'm fucking doing it every day. It's what enables me to re-embrace life every day, happy and ready for the day when I'm eating other people's problems all day. And just on that note, one last thought, and it's simply this, that 500 pound bag of rocks that you have on your back that I talk about in my book, and you guys have heard me say before, of all the pain, every one of the pains and hurts of your life is one more rock in that bag. What I do for a living, I'm an expert at collecting rocks. I take people's rocks out of it. And then in the back of my house or in the back of my office, I have a wonderful rock garden. But those rocks don't have the same meaning to me that they have to you. And so being able to take people's rocks, I can't just hold on to them. I have to be able to get rid of them. So when I'm telling you guys to flush out the pain, I'm telling you that because it fucking works and I do it every fucking day of my life and it fucking works. So that's as many fucks as I could fit into two sentences. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you again for tuning into the Badass Counseling Show. Have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.